This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. Open your Bibles this morning to Judges, Judges chapter 13. If you are using one of the Bibles in the pews, that would be page 213. But uh, we've been walking through Judges together. Uh, if you're new today, we're in the midst of a series that we're calling Broken People, Faithful God. That's really what we see in the book of Judges. We see people that are very broken. We see a God who is faithful. People today are broken. And God is still faithful. And so we have been looking at uh, different judges. They're sometimes called saviors or some call, sometimes, sometimes called deliverers in the book of, of Judges. And today we begin to look at probably the most famous one in the book, which is Samson. And so we're going to take a couple of weeks and talk about what we can learn from Samson's story. And it's a fascinating story, isn't it? There's all kinds of, you know, fascinating things in, in Samson's life, but it's not just kind of a bunch of really spellbinding stories. There's a story that we need to get from this. There's, there's an application for life that we need to get from Samson's life, the good and the bad. And so what can we learn from Samson's story? And today we're going to look at chapters 13 and 14, and we're going to be looking at verses throughout those two chapters. And so just keep your Bible open as we dig into it. And let's pray together as we prepare to do it. Heavenly Father, we come before you now and we, we pray that as we open your word, that you would open the text of Scripture to us and that the Spirit would open our minds and our hearts. We know that whenever we open our Bibles, whether it's in a worship service like this, or in a Sunday school class, or a small group, or in a quiet place during our quiet time, day by day, that whenever we open your word, there is enormous potential for life change because your spirit works through your word. And so we don't want to miss what you have for us. Help us to, uh, to really be locked in and focused today and ready to receive, eager and expectant for what you would want to do in our lives through your word today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. On the first Christmas Eve of World War I, Christmas Eve 1914, something extraordinary happened. These armies had been killing one another for several months by this point, and they had come to kind of a stalemate with German trenches on one side and, and British and French uh, trenches on the other, sometimes less than a hundred yards apart. And on that first Christmas Eve, the British soldiers looked across at their 
German enemies and they began to see something really strange. They began to see lights popping up on the outside of the German trenches and then it became obvious what was happening. The soldiers were making sort of makeshift, little makeshift Christmas trees and they were putting candles on the branches and putting them outside of their trenches. And then from uh, less than 100 yards away came the sound. The British soldiers began to, to hear this sound coming from the German trenches of Stila Nacht, Heilige Nacht, Silent Night, Holy Night. And then something extraordinary happened. Men from both sides began to pour out of their trenches and meet in peace in the middle, as together they sang, Christ the Savior is born. Christ the Savior is born. Now Judges 13 is about the birth of a Savior, a very flawed Savior. But His birth really foreshadows and points to the birth of a Savior without flaws. The birth of the Savior that those soldiers were singing about that night. So what do we see here in Judges 13 and 14 as we begin to talk about Samson's life? The first thing that we see is a very desperate situation. So we see in chapter 13 and verse 1, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. And you could translate verse 1, the people of Israel again did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. They did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And remember what sort of the key verses are for understanding the time of the judges? Chapter 17 and verse 6 says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And then again, in the last verse of the book, in 2125, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So this was a time in the land when everybody was going around and just doing what seemed right to them. What was right in their own eyes, which happened to be evil in God's eyes. What was right in their eyes was evil in the eyes of the Lord, which tells us a couple of things about sin that we need to know. First of all, the definition of sin. So, like our culture today, like most people in our culture today, people in that culture were doing what was right, what seemed right to them, what would seem right in their own eyes. In other words, they were saying, hey, we define sin. Just like people in our culture today say, you know, we're going to define sin. Um, you know, the message that we get from our culture today over and over again in a thousand different ways is, you know what, only you can define what's right and wrong for you. And then a 9-11 happens. A Paris happens. 
And suddenly, some of the same people who say that, some of the same people who say, you know, only you can define what's right and wrong for you, some of those same people want to say, ISIS is evil. On what basis do they say ISIS is evil? If we all get to define sin, if, if, if we just get to do whatever is right or wrong in our own eyes, and, you know, just only you can define what's right and wrong for you, if that's the case, what basis do we have for saying ISIS is evil? We have no basis. They don't think they're doing evil. They think they're serving God by killing people that they, like us that they consider to be infidels. They think they're doing righteously and serving God. What basis do we have for, for, for saying that they're doing wrong if we all get to define that? We have no basis, but of course as Bible-believing Christians, we believe that Almighty God gets to define what sin is. We don't think that sin is defined by our feelings. We don't think that sin gets to be defined by our community. We don't think that sin gets to be defined by our culture, and we don't think that sin gets to be defined by the Quran. We believe that sin is defined by God's Word, the Bible. Okay, and so our part is it's not to do what is right in our own eyes, but to use our own eyes to look at the Scripture. And on any issue... To submit ourselves to what Scripture teaches. Because it's God, through His Word, that gets to define what sin is. Um, so, we learned something here about the definition of sin, and second, about the deception of sin. It says that they were doing what was right in their own eyes, they felt it was right. But in God's eyes, it was evil, and it shows us how susceptible we are to being self-deceived, right? You know, we think, that we think that we're doing right. It seems right to us. It feels right. It seems right to us. Well, the Bible says in Proverbs 14, there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And, and it's just about to kill an entire nation, the nation of Israel here. They're about to become extinct as a nation, as a people. Now let's look again at the situation that Israel is in at this point. The people of Israel did again what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, you know the pattern of judges if you've been here for this series. You know that the pattern in Judges is disobedience followed by discipline followed by deliverance. The people will disobey God. They will bring a bunch of self-inflicted pain into their lives because of their disobedience. And so they will be disciplined by God. Um, they'll, cr they'll cry out in pain and God raises up a deliverer, a judge, a savior for them. Okay, which in this case is going to be Samson. So, in a way, we're going to see that pattern playing out here as well, but with one difference. In this case, the people really aren't crying out in pain anymore. 
You know, in every other case that we've looked at in this series, they were being physically brutalized by their conqueror and things like that. And so, you know, they were in pain and they were crying out in pain. In this situation, it was different. They were under the political domination of the Philistines, but they really weren't suffering physically. And you know what was happening? They were just accommodating to the, to, uh, to, to, to the sin around them. They weren't crying out, crying out in pain. In fact, they were kind of enjoying their sin. And so really, you know, they were becoming more and more like the Philistines all the time. They were, they were worshiping Philistine gods. They were intermarrying with the Philistines. And the problem with that was not anything racial. But the problem was that every time God's people would intermarry with unbelievers, they would eventually become unbelievers and begin to worship false gods. That was the problem. And that's what's happening. And so if this had continued to go on within a couple of generations, there would have been no Israel. There would have been no Jews. They would all have become just completely absorbed into Philistine culture. This is about as perilous a situation as Israel was, was ever in because they're about to cease to exist if this had continued to go on. Well, God was not going to allow that to happen because God had promised that through Israel... He was going to bless the world. He was going to bless all the peoples through this one people. And of course, eventually he's going to do that by bringing the Messiah from this people. So God was going to, not going to allow his promises to Israel to fall to the ground. So, he's going to raise up a deliverer. And through him, God's going to force the issue with the Philistines. So the second thing that we see here in chapter 13 is a miraculous birth. Okay? So verses 2 and 3 tells us about the birth of Samson. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son... And then the angel says to her in verse 5, And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. But their ultimate problem was not the Philistines, right? Their ultimate problem was sin. And see, these, the verbiage here in verses 2 and 3 of Judges 14 is foreshadowing the language that we're going to see in Matthew 121, where the Bible says of Mary, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, when you look at scripture, you see the theme of miraculous birth winding its way through the scriptures. So you see um, Sarah giving birth to Isaac, that wasn't supposed to happen. She's past the age of childbearing. And you see Hannah giving birth to Samuel. She wasn't supposed to be able uh, to do that. You see Elizabeth giving birth to John the Baptist. Again, that wasn't supposed to happen. She wasn't supposed to be able to do that. And all of these miraculous births point to the most miraculous birth, which is a virgin giving birth to the Savior. And they also point to the, the fact that God is 
able, that nothing is impossible with Him. But they even point beyond that. They point to the new birth. They foreshadow the birth of Jesus who gives new birth to those who trust Him. And every time the new birth happens, it is a miracle. Because what God is doing every time somebody is born again is He is taking a heart of stone and turning it into a heart of flesh. He is raising them from the dead spiritually and giving them life. The new birth is a miracle. All of these miraculous births point to it. The third thing that we see uh, is the flawed character of a flawed Savior. So, in chapter 13, Samson is born, miracle of God. But then in chapter 14, we see Samson as a young man. (laughs) And he's got some problems. (laughs) And the problems begin immediately in chapter 14. What do we see here? Samson went down to Timnah. And at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. And he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. Think about this. This is the guy who is supposed to save Israel from the Philistines. Part of the reason why they need saving is because they're intermarrying with these people. And he comes along and he says, I want to marry a Philistine woman. Think about the reaction of his parents. Okay, his parents have, if you read chapter 13, it's this beautiful story of the angel of the Lord appearing to them. And, and you know, it's, it's their son that's going to save Israel from the Philistines. And now their son, who's supposed to be the Savior, is coming to them and saying, I want to marry a Philistine. Look at their reaction. In verse 3, his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you must go and take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? (laughs) You know, it's interesting. When you read chapter 13, you know, there's this beautiful story and, and, and this baby is coming and there's just this sense of anticipation. And when you read chapter 13, when you finish it, you almost think, Hey, Samson's going to be the greatest of the judges. You know, he's going to be a man of God. And then in chapter 14, you meet the real Samson. (laughs) The real deal. And the flaws in his character start coming out uh, just immediately. And you you see, this is a guy who he he has no self-control. He can't, he's lustful. He can't control his sexual appetite. Uh, He can't control his physical appetite. He can't control his temper. He's impulsive. He's emotionally immature. And he's unteachable. Other than that, he has great character, Samson. Okay? Um, And the problems with his character emerge right here at the beginning of the chapter when he wants to marry a, a Philistine, and, and then when his parents question that, what does he say at the end of verse 3? Samson said to his father, get her for me. And in Hebrew, it's even more harsh than that. Get her for me. Why? 
for she is right in my eyes. See, Samson mirrors the problems of the nation, right? Everybody wants to do what's right in their own eyes. Samson, this seems right to me. Therefore, I should have it. He's mirroring the problems of the people. Um, and all of these, these, these character flaws begin to, to come out. It, you know, it, it, it begins with his desire to marry a Philistine woman. And then we have this famous story of, the, of Samson and the lion, beginning in verse 5. Behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. Now we learn something else here about Samson, and that is that God had given him supernatural strength. But... Why doesn't he tell his parents about what's happened? Well, the reason is this. In chapter 13, we learn something else about Samson, and that is that he was a Nazarite. That the angel of the Lord had told his parents that he was to be a Nazarite from birth. And he took a Nazarite vow, and that means he was never going to cut his hair, never drink from the fruit of the vine, and never touch a dead body. Well, obviously here, when he kills a lion, he's touching a dead body. But there was a prescription for that. If a Nazarite touched a dead body, sort of inadvertently or whatever, as he does here, okay, there's, there's, they had to go through eight days of ritual cleansing. But see, he blows that off. He doesn't tell his mom and dad what he's done because he knows his mom and dad are going to tell him to do the right thing and go through this eight-day ritual. Samson says, I can't be bothered with that. So he just blows off the, God's prescription for cleansing. And then his disobedience gets even more flagrant because we read in verses 8 and 9 that after some days he returned to take her and he turned aside to see the carcass of the lion. And behold, there was a swarm of bees in the body of the lion and honey. He scraped it out into his hands and went on eating as he went. And he came to his father and mother and gave some to them, and they ate, but he did not tell them that he had scraped the honey from the carcass of the lion. Now, when I heard first heard this story as a kid, I was just thinking, man, this is really cool. This guy is scooping honey from, you know, a lion's carcass and so forth. But the point here is that he is flagrantly disregarding his Nazarite vow. See, the first time that he touched the dead body of the lion, well, he just killed the lion, and maybe you could say it was somewhat inadvertent. But now, this is just flagrant disobedience. Okay, he's putting his hands in this carcass, and once again, doesn't tell mom and dad, because he knows they're going to tell him to do the right thing. And he doesn't want to do it. And then, he's on his way down to Philistine territory to follow through on this marriage to a Philistine woman. And so he's going to be surrounded by, uh, you know, unbelieving pagan types of people, and he's going to get himself into trouble once again. He makes a foolish wager. He goes down, and he begins to verbally joust with these young Philistine men at the wedding. 
and makes a foolish wager, which we read about in verses 12 and following. And Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you will give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, out of the eater came something to eat, out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day, they said to Samson's wife, and she's called his wife here, technically she's his wife-to-be, okay, at this point. Entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you not invited us here to, have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, only, you only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, behold, I have not told my father nor my mother. And shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days that their feast lasted. And on the seventh day he told her because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people, and the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, what is sweeter than honey, what is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. Do you see how one sin leads to another? Okay, this begins, chapter 14 begins with, um, with, with Samson uh, not making a godly choice, Samson allows uh, his testosterone to rule in his choice of a bride, so he disregards what God desires, and he, he's filled with lust, and he says, I'm going to marry this Philistine woman. Well, it just goes from bad to worse. Okay, because one sinful choice leads to others. Okay, and now he's, he's flagrantly disregarding his Nazarite vow, and then even more flagrantly disregarding his vow. And now he's going down to Philistine territory to take his bride, and he's surrounded by, you know, just... Uh, people who have no fear of God whatsoever, gets into this foolish verbal jousting and does this wager with them. They're threatening his bride-to-be that they're going to burn her, burn her family. And so she's pressuring him for information, which he eventually gives. I mean, you see how this spirals. If sin is never isolated, it doesn't work like that. Okay, one leads to another. It just gets worse and worse and worse. And so Samson's put himself in this situation. He's, he's, he's done it to himself. You know, Proverbs 6.27 says, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Hello? You carry hot coals up against your... Your clothing, guess what? It catches on fire. And Samson is finding that out. And then it just gets even worse. At the end of the chapter, in verses 19 and 20, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down 30 men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. 
only in Judges, okay? Just crazy uh, dysfunction. I mean, now, what's he, what's he lost? He's lost his bride-to-be. He's lost his temper. And lots of Philistines have lost their lives. But through all of this craziness and all of this dysfunction, God's purpose in raising up Samson is going to stand because of his sovereignty. And that's what we see here, is a sovereignty of God. There is one verse that we have yet to go over, and it is the most important verse in chapters 12 and 13. And it's this, it's verse 4 of chapter 14. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he, he being God, was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. The context of verse 4 is that Samson has just told his poor parents that he's going to marry this Philistine woman. And you remember their reaction. They're just incredibly upset by the sinful choice that he is making. What they didn't know and what, what Samson didn't know either was that God had a deeper purpose in what was going on. And God's purposes are always good. You see, God is going to do something incredibly good through Samson's incredibly sinful choice. That does not absolve Samson of the responsibility for his sin. And he's hurting for it. But you see, God in his sovereignty is able to even work through sinful human choices to further his own saving purposes. Okay, and that's, that's what we see here. You see, God is determined to force the issue with the Philistines. Because Israel is about to disappear. They're about to become Philistine. And so God is going to force the issue. God is going to bring about the separation in order to preserve His people and to preserve all of His saving promises that He's going to carry out through Israel. And He's going to do it through Samson's life and even through the sinful choice that Samson makes to ally himself with a Philistine woman. God is going to use that to force the issue with the Philistines and to preserve His people and to preserve the promises that He's going to carry out through them. Now see, this is kind of like the story of Joseph in Genesis. Alright, what happens in Joseph's life? So Joseph is sold into slavery in Egypt by his own brothers. His own jealous brothers who were filled with hatred for him sell him to a group of traders headed to Egypt. Sell their own brother as a slave. It was evil. It was sinful. And they're held accountable for their sin, but see... God was doing something else in that. God had another purpose altogether in that. 
a deeper purpose, a saving purpose. God's saving purpose was that he was in reality sending Joseph to Egypt so that Joseph could be used to save the lives of countless numbers of people there. So eventually, when Joseph and his brothers meet back up, what does he say to them in Genesis 45? Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother, Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. I thought his brothers sold him as a slave. I thought they... Uh, no. <laughs> Joseph said something was deeper, deeper was going on that you didn't understand. You just thought you were selling me as a slave. You had an evil purpose. But God had a good purpose, a deeper purpose. God was sending me here because he wanted me to be his instrument to preserve life, to save lives. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And again, in Genesis 50, Joseph says to them, As for you, he's talking to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. When things happen in your life as a Christian that you just can't understand, I want you to understand this. A sovereign God loves you. That means He's in control. He's in control and furthermore, He loves you with a perfect love. And He knows what He's doing. And Romans 8.28 says that He's causing all things to work together for good to those who love Him and who are called according to His purpose. And He's got good things planned. His purposes are always good. Now the ultimate example of how we see God working something good through something that was meant for evil is found in the Gospel. What could be more horrible than the cross? What could be more evil than the murder of the innocent Son of God? And those who carried out His murder thought they were doing one thing. God was doing something else. Okay? And Peter understands this. Peter gets up and preaches on the day of Pentecost to the crowd in Jerusalem. And what does he say to them? Acts 2.23 This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. See, they thought they were delivering Jesus up. They thought they were the ones who were in charge. The religious leaders, the Roman soldiers, they, hey, we're the ones in charge here. They weren't in charge at all. God was in charge. God was doing something beautiful, something good. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Peter says, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. They thought they were killing Jesus. 
in reality, God was providing a way for us to be saved for our sins. For our sins. You know. What could be more horrible than Golgotha? What could be more beautiful than the gospel? Okay? They thought they were doing Golgotha. God was doing the gospel. See, so allow the knowledge that God is sovereign and that God loves you to sweeten your trials. You're going to go through trials. You're going to suffer. You're going to go through pain. You're not, things are going to happen that you're not going to understand. But know this. God is in control. He knows what He's doing. And He's causing everything, all of it, to work together for His glory and for your good. And the ultimate example of that is in the gospel. And we remember the gospel now as we come to the Lord's table. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for what we see of you in the gospel, your sovereignty, your love. And as we take part in the supper now, which is meant to keep the gospel central before our eyes, we pray that you would use it to increase our love for you. And Father, I pray for anyone here who doesn't yet know you, I pray that as, as, as this takes place, that they would see how much they are loved by you, that, that you have given a Savior to sh- who has shed his blood for sinners, risen from the dead, that all who turn to him in repentance and faith may have life. And we pray it in his name. Amen. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin. But I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray. Amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1.12. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth, is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through His Word, through prayer, and through His people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to Him in prayer. And find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where His love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you too. Come to one of our services. We worship at 8.30 and 11 on Sunday mornings. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. 
My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.